Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is a partnership between the Department of Criminal Justice and the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Department of Criminal Justice. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics related to government. Some may be surprising and some may not. So please enjoy. Welcome to episode 28 of the Let's Talk Government podcast, the 9-11 terrorist attacks and war on terror. I'm joined by Dr. Abdallah Batah from the International Relations Program in the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Dr. Batah's teaching and research focuses on international relations theory, international political economy, international conflict resolution, and Middle East comparative politics. So Dr. Batah, what was, what was the 9-11 terrorist attacks to you and then what followed? How did that impact you and your perceptions? Well, uh, first of all, I must tell you, I, uh, it all started on highway, interstate highway 35. I was driving down and, you know, I drive from the Twin Cities to uh, MSU 100 miles, basically. And uh, along the way, I listened to uh, PBS, I listened to uh, KSTP, I listened to uh, KFAN and some of the others. And at that moment, uh, which I recall quite vividly, I was listening to KFAN and they interrupted what they were doing by noting uh, almost casually that a little plane hit one of the towers. And, you know, they commented on it. This is like a scary plane. And uh, they commented on it in in a joking way. And then uh, then we uh, moved closer to Mankato. This was just before 9 a.m. And I had a class at 9.30 in Morris Hall 206, actually. And then as I was going there, they said, oh, there is a second one. Uh, And it began to hit everybody that, oh, this is really deliberate and, and, and serious. I got uh, to campus and entered my classroom 206. I had world politics class there and I had a TV there. So the students had put the TV on because they wanted to watch. And I came in and I told them just keep it as it is. The door was open on the other side in the main hallway. And I see Carol Shrewsbury peeking in to see basically, you know, the TV, she enters, you know, Carol Shrewsbury and I were not in the best of terms, so to speak. But at that moment, she looked at me, I looked at her, and you could say there was a, a, a link, a, a, you know, humanity that kind of was exposed to both of us, in each of us, I guess. And uh, she entered and stood there, and we all looked, and we saw the second tower falling apart. And uh, and part of the announcement said that the U.S. government is directing all flights to the U.S. to go to Canada. And for a moment, we joked about it. You know, it's kind of we laughed at it because, like, well, you're afraid of them hitting the United States, but you couldn't go ahead and go to Canada. And so, you know, that's that is vivid in my memory. And I tell you that probably for two weeks after that. Uh, we didn't, could not have any normal discussion about any of the topics. And it was relevant because my class was world politics. And of course, uh, 
you know, these issues are very much at the center of what we talk about. So it was relevant uh, and timely, but I imagine even in the sciences, they have the same, similar discussions. So that's what I recall about. Then of course, all the big things that uh, ensued after that. Right. right, and uh, I um, I actually watched the second plane hit a tower. I was in training, and somebody came in and said, "A plane just hit the World Trade Center. Let's turn on the TV." And literally, I I saw the second plane hit. So you just when you see something like that or experience it, you just take a breath because you just know everything has shifted, right? So three days later, after nine eleven on September fourteenth. Uh, President George Bush gets um, authorized the authorization for use of military force against terrorism. Um, and this was directed af at Afghanistan. So from your perspective as a scholar of comparative politics and world politics, what did that mean to you? And what did you see happen after that? Well, I mean, first of all, the question is who did it? And I remember, you know, I did some interviews and I didn't have much information, but I was confident in saying that the actor behind this, the bad guy behind this is not a state. Uh, and there've been talk about Osama bin Laden, but things were not really sure, but I can be sure that it was not a state, like Iraq, for example. Right. And why was I sure about it? Because I was asked, why would you, would you be so sure about it? I said, because it took a lot of secrecy, a lot of deliberate action, secrecy that the states cannot do. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not, I mean, I assure you, if it had been a state, it would have been foiled, it would have been disrupted, uh, we would have known about it before it, even it happened. So it had to be something else uh, that is yet to emerge. And of course, uh, ultimately, uh, the, you know, the finger was pointed to Osama bin Laden and the uh, Al-Qaeda, the group he formed uh, in 1998. And of course, you know, what followed from that was uh, a number of initiatives that literally changed the world, mm -hmm. as we know it. I mean, and relations among countries and even in societies, there are domestic changes that uh, were reflected. There were changes in the Middle East as a region. There were uh, global uh, changes as well. So 9-11 and the war on terror uh, basically brought all of that uh, about, so to speak. And I must say that, you know, as people have noted many times before, that uh, the war on terror or war on terrorism is, is a nebulous term. Uh, you know, uh, it's like you say, a, a war on democracy, a war on poverty, a war, it seems to be saying something, but it, there's nothing concrete in there, so to speak. And, uh, but what it did, however, the terminology is give a cover for an open-ended warfare. That's really, that's really the value, if you want to say value, that's the value of it. It's basically... Instead of saying this is a war to defeat X, and then we, you know, then the X's mission is accomplished and we go home. Right. Uh, but this was open-ended and global in its uh, reach. Well, and exactly right. And you are using the war on terror or terrorism, depending on what you're quoting, you get to attack different targets. You don't have to focus because initially our focus was on Afghanistan. 
And then within a year, now we're focused on Iraq and we've mm-hmm. done drone sti- strikes in Iraq and Iran and um, Yemen and Syria. So, I mean, the, the whole area has been covered. I mean, Pakistan, we did missions into Pakistan. That's where they got Osama bin Laden, um, where they killed him, was actually within the Pakistan borders. So it's very interesting. So can well, let's talk about- countries, oh. 80 countries were affected. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could you could basically say that 80 countries were in one way or another involved, and it became a an umbrella, a cover, so to speak, not just for the two wars you have spoken about, but for isolated strikes, whether they're uh, through drones, for example, or other means. Uh, it became also a cover for dictatorial regimes. Everywhere in the Middle East and everywhere in Africa and elsewhere to hunt down uh, their, their dissidents and their opposition under the notion we are fighting uh, global terror. So it became a useful cover for all sorts of uh, actors, so to speak. So could you just speak to that a little bit more? Because our listeners might not be aware of it. Could you give an example or two of the dictatorial um, regimes that use this war on terror to basically hunt their opposition? Well, I mean, if you take uh, Pakistan, you mentioned Pakistan. Pakistan became, uh, you know, part of it in a bigger way than other countries. Uh, According to their current uh, president, Imran Khan, uh, he says that by the involvement of the Pakistani government, over 70,000 Pakistanis were killed, meaning the government turned against its own people. And you could imagine that wreaks havoc in a, a country that's to begin with impoverished and so add to it that, uh, you know, complication. And, um, uh, and essentially, it kind of ingredients that would make for a failed state. Uh, you could consider what happened in Syria, for example. Uh, in Iraq, you know, the war on ISIS is in the Syria-Iraq region, and now, of course, Afghanistan. And they are enmeshed, uh, you know, in that. Uh, but dissidents and opposition uh, groups and individuals, prominent or otherwise, uh, have been suppressed in a big way in Egypt, in uh, and of course, Syria has a civil war uh, in Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, the slightest criticism uh, of the government, even insu- insinuation of criticism, uh, lands you in prison and uh, basically nobody knows what happens to you. Mm-hmm. And there are several scholars, some of them are quite sick because of age or disease. Uh, they're behind bars. And... Uh, the case go, you know, you know, with other countries. The CIA started a program called rendition, in which it captures people, uh, presumably suspected uh, of uh, terrorism or, or plotting, I suppose, and then uh, um, it uh, sent them to countries that will guarantee they'd be tortured. So they went to Jordan, they went to Egypt, they went to Poland and other places. And the rendition program and the idea is to extract confessions from them. And through methods such as pulling their nails and doing all sorts of, you know, torture uh, uh, to them. And uh, so things like that, you know, 
uh, went all over the place. Well, it's interesting you brought that up because, I mean, I, we know it happened before, but since uh, the 9-11 and coming to light about the torture and taking citizens from one country to another to interrogate them and torture them has really kind of come to light and makes you wonder how we tolerate that. But all the people have to say is we don't want another 9-11. And people are like, oh, yes, okay, it's okay, when it's really not okay. So. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think people are naive because they think, well, you know, if it's our government that is doing it, it must have good reasons. In fact, the, you know, if you take just the case of Guantanamo and you say, well, you know, there are about 780 people that were captured and brought, brought to Guantanamo. Mm-hmm. About 800, uh, you know, some 32, I believe, of them were released without a charge. Mm-hmm. Without a charge. Now, mind you, some of them had been held for 10, 12, 13, 14 years. You know, one of them was a 15-year-old Canadian, and, uh, and uh, he was released, and Canada you know, apologized to him and to his family. And I think paid uh, some $10 million, Canadian dollars uh, to him. Uh, they have elderly and so on and so forth. Guantanamo today still has 39. Uh, only two have been convicted. Right. Now we're talking about uh, 19 years afterwards. Mm-hmm. 20 years mm-hmm. after, two convicted. I mean, you'd think you're holding them for all of those years. Uh, you know, you would bring some charges against them and you would uh, convict them. Why would you otherwise hold them? Right. Violations, uh, gross violations of human rights. And I think it's because it's out of sight. No wonder it's in Guantanamo, not in prisons in the United States. They're not afforded the same rights, you know. And, uh, you know, so people... It, it happens to the bad guys. So anybody that's there is a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And that's it. They're condemned. Uh, now, what happened, of course, in 2014, uh, a swap uh, for releasing hostages, one hostage, one sergeant uh, was captured, a U.S. soldier uh, captured by, um, uh, by the Taliban. And in 2014, um, you know, there was a swap of prisoners. And uh, some uh, uh, Taliban leaders uh, and members were released in an exchange to their sergeant. Uh, one of them now is an acting prime minister. Now, yeah. And then about five, six of them, high officials in the government of the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Those have served years in Guantanamo. You know, so... You know, that's part of the legacy, I guess. It is a sad part because, I mean, they they created their own classification for the military combatants in Guantanamo so that they didn't have to treat them as prisoners of war. Yet they were not afforded our constitutional protections in the United States. It is is such a sad legacy. So so let's transition from that. How does that legacy, the Guantanamo, the CIA taking citizens from one country to another torture, how does that change the view of the United States to the rest of the world, the political world? Oh, I think tremendously. I mean, uh, you know, you say 
United States is trying to, uh, you know, bring democracy to the Middle East and say that to the people there. And I, when I travel, they, they laugh at you. They say, of course, that's a joke, you know. I mean, it, it's a funny joke. Uh, or maybe it's not too funny. Uh, because, well, the United States need to be a model of it in the first place by treating the Muslims in the country, uh, you know, uh, because of Islamophobia and the rest of that. The United States need to act uh, uh, based on the rule of law, but it hasn't really shown that. The United States needs to, you know, because of their abuses, like, for example, what happened in Abu Ghraib prison and the tortures. Uh, and those were displayed and people taking videos uh, as they were torturing prisoners. And of course, the uh, uh, United States use of uh, private military uh, security companies like Blackwater and others. And uh, the shooting of civilians, innocent civilians in the Soros uh, Square, for example, it's like fly over and shoot everybody. It was like, a, you know, it was a, it was a, a hunt. It was, there's nothing to it. And of course, all of that is displayed nowadays by the social media, by Al Jazeera, by CNN. And people see that. They say, oh, look what the United States is doing. And that in many ways, uh, in many ways takes the criticism from their, from their own government because their governments can justify what they're doing because he is in ICS doing it. We could do it, you know? And uh, uh, so the, no longer, I mean, I grew up in Jordan and I read in books about the US Civil War and Abraham Lincoln and freeing of the slaves and so on and so forth. And the image was really glowing. And I know before that, the United States image was great in the Middle East because it's not, it had it not been a colonial power like the British and the French. And Woodrow Wilson advocated self-determination. Well, so the image was really positive of the United States. But in the past several decades, all of that actually <clears throat> went away. And, you know, in, in IR, we speak about soft power and that soft power, the meter there went down to zero. Mm. The United States used to really have a big edge when it comes to that. So what's the big difference between the United States and the Soviet Union? Well, the United States is a democracy, an advocate for human rights and uh, rule of law. All of those glowing terms uh, were on the side of the Soviet Union is an atrocious dictatorship. It's brutal. It's this, it's this. Now you say, well, there's no difference. Mm -hmm. There's not much of a difference. The United States supports dictators like Russia, uh, supplies them with weapons, supplies sometimes the two sides of a conflict, you know, with weapons. The United States engages in all sorts of nefarious activities. Uh, the CIA is linked to a lot of different negative things. And uh, the image has been tattered, has been really badly, uh, you know, uh, impacted. So that's our political image. What about the economics of the war on terror? Has it impacted any of the regions like Middle East, Pakistan, Afghanistan, economically that we've been conducting this war on terror? Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, take the countries that where the war was conducted in 
Ebiguetic, Afghanistan, and, uh, and Iraq, for example, their countries were devastated. Their infrastructure was devastated. They talk about electricity and water facilities, and you talk about roads and uh, bridges and so on and so forth. All of that requires uh, a lot of money to repair, and a lot of, it causes a lot of hardship for the people. And uh, the Iraq in particular, well, both of them, I guess, Iraq, of course, has suffered uh, for a decade long uh, under the sanctions led by the United States, brutal sanctions. By 1995, it was said by the experts that looked at it, a lot of them Western and U.S., that over half a million children in Iraq died due to the sanctions. And in fact, uh, Mrs. Albright uh, was asked about that in a 19... 95 interview on 60 Minutes, uh, and uh, Leslie Stoll asked her, what do you think about half a million Iraqi children dying that are linked to this? He said, she asked her, do you think it's worth it? She said, yes, I think it's worth it. Now, Mrs. Albright was then the ambassador of the United States in the UN, and shortly after that became the US Secretary of State. There is a, a video of that on YouTube, a 60-minute uh, you know, piece. Uh, so it, the country has been devastated under the sanctions, uh, the most severe and comprehensive sanctions ever, ever. And uh, it, so the country was reeling under them. And uh, you know, people thought, well, the United States would invade Iraq. People would line up in the streets uh, and, and, and cheer the American troops as liberators. Now, this is what the neoconservatives sold the idea. And not only that, it, the war would be paid for by Iraqi oil. And of course, all of that turned upside down. The neoconservatives were simply, uh, you know, dishing out a bad deal for the United States, a fantasy kind of deal for the United States. And how could you, how could the Iraqis, there's certainly some of them would cheer. No, no doubt, but the vast majority of the Iraqis suffered under Saddam Hussein's, under, uh, under the sanctions. Saddam Hussein was a bad guy, but from their perspective, he was their son of a bitch. But the U.S. was the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so in comparison, you know, you know, the, Saddam Hussein would look relatively better, and there is some reminiscence uh, for his era nowadays, I guess, because of the chaos in Iraq. So instability in Iraq is part of that legacy. Uh, The creation of a governmental system that is is basically designed to fail because it it is similar to that system that exists in Lebanon. Uh, It's called constitutional system which basically divide power among the different confessional groups. But what happens, this is based on demographics, demographics change, which means then you have instability uh, along the way. I mean, the United States wants to put democracy in Iraq, but for sure it didn't want it to have a democracy similar to that of the United States, where everybody is a citizen, not, you know, divided among this group or that group. You know, but that's the legacy in Iraq, and uh, you still have here almost uh, on a daily basis of killing there. Now, 
Afghanistan is a different story because Afghanistan, you know, had uh, a number of governments in the late 70s and the Soviets invaded. And of course, you had a lengthy war against the Soviet Union uh, and the United States participated in that, the United States, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan to help the so-called Mujahideen and to help Osama bin Laden against, uh, against the Soviets. The irony, the United States, the moment the Soviets left under Gorbachev, the United States said, goodbye, we'll see you later. Mm-hmm. Surely they would have recognized that the country has been devastated and need infrastructure and need rehabilitation and need to help set up its government, but it plunged immediately into a civil war. And uh, the civil war made for a failed state that became you know, a a place that is conducive for Osama bin Laden and his group to come back to. They had actually left. They come back to heaven for them because of instability there. The government is fighting, you know, a civil war. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I look at our withdrawal nowadays and I say, that's exactly what happened in the 1980s. I mean, this is, what, is that deliberate or what? I mean, is it are officials really ignorant? I mean, you want to make a deal with the Taliban, which the Trump administration did. You know, they signed an agreement with them. Okay, well, for the sake of Afghanistan and stability, for your sake, so that it doesn't become a failed state and a safe haven for terrorists, help them a little bit. They want they want to reconnect. They want to join now. We're spending our time of saying, well, you know, their government, this is, you know, an interim government does not have women in it. It doesn't have minorities in it. It doesn't have this, doesn't have that in it. Well, I'm not really sure how much of a question was that during the U.S. Civil War. Quite frankly, a, a country that's been divided, give it time to stand on its own feet and pressure it in ways that don't have to necessarily be, uh, you know, kind of made stipulations and announcements. You made a deal with them. Why didn't you make those deals with them? Mm-hmm. Why didn't you stipulate that we will get out of Afghanistan provided you do A, B, C, D? United States didn't do that. But I look at the media and I hear the pronouncement people are so, you know, their hearts bleed because women are not really included in the government. To me, it's like if that was so important for the United States, the United States could have put that as a stipulation. Right? I mean, it's, right. it belies all of that, you know, emphasis, which I think is a distraction rather than a real thing, you know. And I should note, you know, in this, uh, the important point about Iraq. Iraq, uh, the President Bush said it is part of the war on terror. But uh, everything else about it says it shouldn't have been. Uh, Iraq, Iraq's war is not, you know, parallel to that of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. The United States invaded a sovereign country, a sovereign country illegally, illegally Mm -hmm. under international law. That's why in the Security Council, countries did not support it. That's why we put together what is called coalition of the willing, not 
is the war that George W. Bush led into Iraq is not the same as the, uh, the war that his dad led under the rubric of the United Nations. So it's an illegal war. And imagine the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis that were killed, the devastation of Iraq, the instability of there. Uh, I think to lump it under the war on terrorism without questioning is to do injustice to the fact that this was an aggressive war by United States. And the reason United States got away with it because it's can, not because of right or justice. That is such a good point because the war in Afghanistan was very, was heavily supported. It was supported um, by the UN. It was supported by other countries because there was clear evidence of the link to Afghanistan, but the Iraqi war was not. So no. I would like to take you to one other country before we kind of wrap up. How does this impact our relations with Iran right now? I mean, we've been sanctioning them for generations as well. We're drone striking. Well, what do you think about that? Yes, and of course, you know, this has been taking place since, of course, the revolution there in 1979. And uh, the Iranians, of course, took the hostages and held them for 444 days. Things soured there during the Iraq war. We supported both Iraq and Iran simultaneously. Uh, the Reagan administration said Iran, you know, is a terrorist-backing country. We will never do it, negotiate with them or deal with them. And we discovered, of course, from the Iran counter that, oh, in fact, they were dealing with them and supplying them with missiles and so on and so forth. Ali North was part of that deal. Uh, but the Iran, Iranians were happy about that. Uh, in the 1990s, you know, the Bush and then uh, Clinton administration continued with that. Uh, Clinton administration said it's dual containment, dual meaning of Iran and, and of Iraq. Now, what happened, uh, uh, you know, subsequent to 9-11? The Iranians had major overtures to the United States that they understand they will support the United States efforts. And indeed, materially, they did support it in Afghanistan against the Taliban. There's a shared interest there. And uh, in Iraq, they didn't. But because, of course, they supported the Shia in there that they are in power now. Now, uh, if you say, well, you know, who won the war in Iraq? The easy answer is Iran. <laughs> Iran turned out to be the beneficiary of the war in Iraq because it had put in power all of those people that had been uh, reared, I guess, in, in Tehran, basically. They're Iraqis, but they were, you know, very much uh, uh, stooges of the Iranian government. And the war in Syria now, you know, against ISIS, likewise, the beneficiary of that is um, Iran and Russia. And well, to a lesser extent, I guess we'll be careful. To a lesser extent. So Iran, Iran actually, after 9-11, basically wanted to come close to the United States and support the United States effort, put aside, you know, all the issues uh, that had been there. Uh, but what happened, uh, President Bush made a big speech in which he identified what he called the axis of evil countries. And he named Iran as one of the three, Iraq being one and North Korea being another one. 
And of course, uh, uh, the message was sent, you know, United States then following this invaded Iraq. Uh, Iran and North Korea got the message that the reason why United States did that is because Iraq indeed didn't have any WMD weapons, didn't have nuclear weapons. Uh, and so that made the North Koreans hasten to get theirs. And, and so all of the rhetoric about North Korea went away, right? And they have developed, uh, you know, a number of nuclear warheads that Iranians have been doing their very best to acquire nuclear weapons, realizing that that may be the only thing that would keep the United States uh, from attacking. So it, I would think that policy was counterproductive unfortunately, and Iran has uh, gained the upper edge in it. Well, that's very interesting. Um, and President Bush did rely on that axis of evil, kind of hearkening back to the World War II imagery, where most of his supporters would have been at that right age at that time. So, all right. So, Dr. Batal, would you like to give us some closing, some of your closing thoughts on maybe how is the war on terror going to keep progressing or the impact on the future here? Yeah, I mean, I think it will continue uh, because, as I, I said, the scale of it covers about 80 countries or so. Countries have realized that uh, they have a cover. And so you see now uh, countries that uh, want to suppress their minorities have a free hand to do that. Look at China, for example, um, you know, uh, with their minorities, particularly the Muslim minority, the Uyghur. Uh, minority, look at Myanmar with the Rohingya, for example, look at India in Kashmir and the Muslim, the Muslims in there. Uh, the, uh, the Arab Spring revolutions were promising for a moment or two, but the counter-revolutionary basically using uh, the war on terror, uh, a cover for them, uh, came back and harshly put down uh, their opposition and um, uh, instability in the region. The region is a whole lot more unstable uh, than it had been before. Civil wars rage on in Yemen, in, in Syria. Iraq is on the verge of breaking up as well. Uh, dissident group cannot speak uh, against their governments. And it has really been, it has been, uh, you know, terrible for promoting human rights and and uh, and democracy and free speech. You know, and the rest of that. Not not to mention, of course, the domestic you know impact here. You know, the Patriot Act and the amendments that followed that, and their impact on the First Amendment, their impact on the Fourth Amendment uh, as well. Um, Islamophobia, uh, the rise of right-wing nationalism, not just in the United States, in Europe and India and in a lot, a lot of places. So this is, this is something that I think uh, will continue for some time, unfortunately, and governments are emboldened to take those measures. Anytime you criticize the government, they say, well, you're doing it, number one. Number two, we're fighting terrorists. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay, well, you know, everybody define who their terrorists are. You know, and your terrorists may not be necessarily my terrorists, but nevertheless, everybody now is free to define their own, you know, terrorists. Not to mention the legacy in terms of money. I mean, the, 
staggering amounts of money spent on those wars. I think the Brown uh, Watson Institute issued a report, annual report for the past several years. And the last one was on September 1st said that um, the war on terror, uh, you know, the cost, part of it is a future cost for the veterans and so on and so forth, about uh, $8 trillion. $8 trillion. They estimate 900,000 people approximately uh, died. They estimate, you know, lots and lots of civilians. Hundreds of journalists, some of them were, you know, attacked. Mm-hmm. I mean, U.S. forces in Iraq attacked journalists on the 15th floor of the Palestine Hotel in Baghdad. They attacked the headquarters of Al Jazeera in Baghdad as well as in Kabul. It's, it's a tough day to be a journalist. I mean, this is like, you know, and of course they had, you know, their journalists, the so-called embedded. Can you imagine embedded? I mean, you could easily say embed, you know, as opposed to embedded because a journalist will see whatever you want them to see. If they are embedded, if they're sitting in your tank, or they're sitting in your Humvee, okay, they're essentially houses you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So anyway, but, you know, that's that's, uh, where we are. I think that, you know, there is so much that will continue based on, you know, this war. We we don't know if there will ever be a clear cut, you know, end of that war. The changes that have taken place, I think, will last uh, for generations uh, to come. And of well, course, not, not to mention the fact that in the Middle East, our support for the uh, dictators has, if anything, increased because the dictators play along. You know, you just pay them money, you just uh, do arm twisting with them, you pressure them, they look, you know, they, they do what you want. Mm-hmm. Certainly, democracy, and I speak, you know, to groups, and they say, you know, democracy, I'm putting democracy, and I tell them, think about it. Do you really, do you, if you want to take the U.S. government perspective, do you really want there to be democracy in these countries? Think about it. Don't answer <laughs> right away. A democracy will call for you to basically negotiate with legitimate, uh, popularly elected people who will have the backbone to stand up for you if they don't like what you're doing. But a dictator, you could threaten them, you could bribe them, you know, they can more easily be malleable and do what you want to do. And uh, that's what we have in the Middle East. United States is now supporting in a bigger way than it did before. Uh, Those, uh, you know, dictators and, you know, you would imagine there'll be a bigger, there will be a lash at some point. United States presence and and bases having also expanded and increased. That will have, uh, you know, that will have what one scholar called a blowback at some point. And it's important that we all know that. It's things don't, people are not crazy and doing things bad to us. It isn't as though they say, oh, I woke up this morning, I really want to kill some Americans. Why? Because I want to. You know, they don't realize that you know, there are some things that people worry about, like you and I worry about them. I mean, look at the shift, dramatic shift the United States took under those circumstances to 
go, you know, United States had been biased and quite supportive of Israel. And you could say that's 90%. But now it's, it's 200%. Right. With, with, with the Trump administration recognizing Jerusalem, which the Israeli government had accepted that nego- uh, Jerusalem would be, under, would be subject to the negotiations. No, the Trump administration said no. This is not to be subject to the negotiations. We recognize it as your capital. We're going to move our embassy there. And okay, so here you trample on international law, you on resolutions, uh, you know, and what would the people that are impacted by this negatively say? Thank you, United States. You know, you're kind of, you know, you're so great. You just kind of do things that, that, that way. You know, you're, you're helping us. I mean, We'd love that kind of help, you know. Anyway, so. There's so much more we need to talk about. I, I love talking with you, Dr. Batak, because you bring such a, an, a global perspective that as I'm sitting here, I'm like, we need to talk about some more things. So, well, thank you for your time. Again, uh, such interesting conversations. And there are generations that have been impacted by the war on terror and sanctions that we seem to forget about here in the United States. So I appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you doing those podcasts. I think we need them and this was the right time to do them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash Let's Talk Gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening.